Imagine for a moment what it must have been like for Paul the Apostle to suddenly arrive at Athens. And you're on your own at Athens. You have been to Berea. And you have received a good welcome at the beginning. For you have discovered that the believers, the people there, the Jews there, are those that are prepared to search the scriptures and see whether these things are so. But there were also some who came down from Thessalonica and upset the apple cart and stirred up the crowd against you. And you're immediately sent away by the brethren and you're on a sea trip and you're going toward Athens. And Silas and Timothy are remaining there at Berea. And you're brought to Athens and you tell those who brought you there to ask Silas and Timothy to come with all speed. And off they go. And you're on your own in this amazing city of Athens. And you look at the beautiful architecture and it's wonderful. You're amazed at the great intellect of the Greek people. But you look around and you see that the whole city is given up to idolatry. And your heart sinks. And the more you walk through the streets of Athens, the heavier and heavier your heart becomes. And you go to the synagogue of the Jews there. And there are Gentile worshippers, Gentile proselytes. And you know that in the synagogue, as everywhere, there's an open time for people to speak. And you take that opportunity to proclaim this amazing gospel in a pagan city that is given over to idolatry. And you go to the marketplace where people are found. You're a personal evangelist. And you want these people to know what you know. You're constrained by the love of Christ. Your heart is burdened and your heart is aching as you see all the idols of Athens around you. And you go there every day. And you speak to those who happen to be at the marketplace. But then there is trouble. There are certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And they deal with you with great contempt. What does this babbler want to say? He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. And the reason why that was because you were consumed 
by your message of Jesus and the resurrection. One historian suggests that there were 30,000 idols in Athens. You have a unique message. And although you're held in contempt, one thing you've learned over the, over the time is to be graciously thick-skinned. For you know that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. We are prepared to engage in debate, believing with all your heart that by the Spirit God will open minds. The Epicureans... Well, they lived about 300, Epirus lived about 300 years before. And they believed that God, denied that God governed the world. They denied the immortality of the soul and they denied angels. And the great thing was to engage in pleasure to engage in tranquility of the mind. But there were others who followed the same thing and they believed in the pleasure being terrible corruption and immorality. And Athens was an awful place. And there were the Stoics there, founded by a man called Zeno. They believed that God was a kind of soul. And they believed in fatalism. And there were different opinions among them. Don't be affected by joy. They believed in being insensible and insensitive to situations. And you are engaging these people these awful, blinded people. But they have a curious approach. The Greek people had a curious mind. And you're brought to the Areopagus, a place where you can open up and debate and declare. You're given a hearing. And that day you know that you're standing in the presence of the great God of heaven and earth. That all these idols before this God are insignificant. You feel that you can take on the world. You're delivered from the fear of man. And you long that these idolaters and they're consumed by their idols might be delivered from idolatry. And you know that there's an altar there to the unknown God. And you're given a glorious opportunity to declare this unknown God. 
Now you've heard that there are other altars to the unknown God elsewhere in Athens. It's not the only one, but this is a glorious opportunity for you to declare the unknown God. And you know by declaring the true God that you're on a confrontation course for the people of Athens. And you begin. As you stand up at the Areopagus, and you say, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. You're so religious. Do you know I even found an altar to the unknown God? Well, I tell you what I'm going to do today. I'm going to proclaim him to you. They were listening. You see, I, he knows only too well that by even declaring the unknown God and proclaiming the true God, you're opposing the many gods there in Athens. You're on a confrontation course with them. God who made the world and everything in it. And you know that there were the Epicureans who were opposed to matter. That matter was eternal. So just by declaring that you're Confronting them with the true God. He made the world. And everything in it. And then you're confronting them with their temples. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's not worship with man's hands. And he is the one who gives life and breath and all things. Never heard anything like it. None of their gods would even compare to this glorious God. He's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Maybe they know that you're a Jew. But now you're talking about every nation. He's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And the reason is that they should seek this amazing God, this Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being.
He is the one who fills heaven and earth. He is the amazing God. He's not confined to temples. He's not an image. And even some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. And you know that some of these things are found in the Greek poets. There's a man called Aratus who lived in Cilicia in 277 BC. Paul's native city. It could be that he'd heard of him there. And you're leading things up to a climax. Because you know that at the end of the day, whatever you say and whatever you preach, whatever you proclaim, requires a personal response. You're not just there to fill people's minds and just to declare the unknown God, but you want a personal call for people in Athens to respond to the message. And that's what you're aiming at in it all. You don't want to tickle their minds. You don't want to expand their minds, although you're preaching to the mind. And you know that the people at Athens enjoy talking and discussing and speculating and sharpening their minds. Then you come for the crunch. This great creator, your creator, demands your personal response. And that personal response is urgent and most important. The most important thing that you could ever do is respond to your Creator. Therefore, since we are His offspring, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something to be shaped by art and man's devising. <coughs> and with those words you demolish the idols of Athens. And with heart of love and compassion. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. He bore with me. He bore with them. Bore with them. But now an amazing thing has come. There has to be a response. This is not a mind sharpening exercise. It's not, I'm just not there, he says, to give you some knowledge. I'm there that in God's goodness you might realise that he is your creator and that he is filling heaven and earth, that in you we, we live and move and have our being. And God has overlooked many things. 
But now there's something you must take to heart. He commands all men everywhere to repent. It was the most important thing and it was the most urgent thing. You've got the hearing. And there's no exception to this command. Sometime later, you're going to speak to King Agrippa. And with the same passion and with the same heart, you're going to tell him quite plainly, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether as I am except for these chains. And as you stood in Athens that day you prayed that that all in Athens who hear me today might become almost and altogether such as I am a Christian saved by grace. Your heart goes out to these people. And yet you know how blind they are. You know how awfully blind they are. Because later on, you're going to write to the Corinthian church, the believers at Corinth, and you're going to tell them that the gospel is vowed. It is vowed to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. With all your heart you're praying that day that the gospel of the glory of Christ might shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. You're not there proclaiming facts. The one who made everyone commands a response from his creation. There's nothing more important to do than to obey that response, to obey that command. And you make it quite clear that it's binding on everyone There is no exception. Even the young woman Lucy Ledby who murdered those babies, horrendous, is commanded to repent. You know there in Athens that it must be done or their souls will be lost. Have you repented? We're all born in sin. We're not born good. We're born in sin. And we need to turn around. And we need to own up. 
We need to confess what we have done. We need to make no excuses. And owning up is very difficult. Saying sorry in to someone else is very difficult. It's a difficult word to say, isn't it? But a sorry to your Creator. And to come with all the excuses. Many years ago there was a man in London He'd been an ex-Irish Guards officer. And he'd been up before the magistrates for stealing a mailbag on Waterloo Station. And his defence was that if the mailbag hadn't fallen off the truck, he would never have picked it up. He was good at making excuses. But you see, repentance means that we have to say, I'm guilty, no defence. I'm guilty. I haven't got a leg to stand on. You see, people have been making excuses since the Garden of Eden. I'm sure that David Hercock's going to draw this out. People have been made excuses since the Garden of Eden. Remember how that Adam said to God, after taking of the fruit, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat, passing the buck. Often in a court of law, the evidence is so great and so compelling the only thing that the person in the dock can say, I've changed my plea to guilty. <coughs> my friend, God knows your thoughts. He knows everything about you. And the wrath of God hangs over your head. One day, if you don't believe to fall upon you in judgment. And God commands you to turn away from your wrongdoing. Now his command is not harsh. Sergeant Major can be harsh with his recruits and make commands. A loving mother or father can give a command that is most loving because they desire that their children do not fall into danger and this is a command that is given by God here because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and here is God with a most loving command, loving the world, embracing the world, and commanding a response of repentance.
No more excuses. Hold up. Guilty as charged. Hold up. And then you see Paul the Apostle turn to thinking from time into eternity. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. How is he going to do that? Everybody being judged by the Lord Jesus Christ because he has been raised from the dead. How is he going to do that? Ah, we're outside of time here. We're in eternity. Some people live as if time doesn't exist. Time does exist in this world. But eternity is timeless. And on that day there will be no jury... There will be no defence solicitous, no defence barrister. Christ will be the only witness. He's seen it all as it really is. And on that day there will be no room for mercy. And all who have not repented will be found guilty. And one day every knee shall bow. Putin will bow. That monster in North Korea will bow. Everyone will bow to him. There will be no miscarriages of justice on that day. A man put in prison for 17 years when he was innocent. No one will get away with anything. But that judge who will say to those who have not repented, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire. Is also today a wonderful saviour. That judge has known what it is to feel the power of sin and the judgment of sin. The horror of sin and the wickedness of sin on his sinless body. He's known what it is to bear God's holy wrath against sin in all of its entirety. In order that you, by repenting of your sin, can be forgiven. Anyone, everyone, who responds in repentance... As a guarantee of complete forgiveness. Not only forgiveness, but a declaration of righteousness. 
So that on that day of judgment, a person can be able to say, Bold shall I stand on that great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay fully absolved from sin I am. My friend, I plead with you to respond to the truth. I plead with you, young and old, to flee to the Lord Jesus. He is a mighty and a glorious Saviour who went to Calvary to die for men and women and boys and girls. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord might be saved, will be saved. And I plead with you this morning, like Paul the Apostle, I wish that all men were as I am. That you may come the way of the cross. That you may repent of your sin. And flee to Christ. For there is no other hope. Who knows what tomorrow will bring. Who knows that this might be the last sermon I'll ever preach. Where will you spend eternity? The resurrection is a guarantee of the last judgment. Now finally let's look at the response to it all. There were some who mocked. Load of all rubbish. There were some. Well, let's give him a second hearing. Let's hear him again about this matter. There was some like that. How do you know there's going to be a possibility of hearing him again anyway? What is your response going to be? But you know, there's a wonderful statement here. However, some men joined him and believed. Are you going to be among them? Are you going to be among those who join the people of God by believing in the saving work of Christ. And we're told that among them was Dionysus the Areopagite. The Areopagite. What an amazing man. You see, there's a historian called Eusebius. He claims that he became the pastor of the church at Corinth. He was a judge in the Areopagus in Athens. 
But it was a poor response in many ways when you think of the numbers that must have been there. There was a woman named Demarius. There were others with them. The most important thing is what is your response going to be? They're going to mock. Rubbish. What a load of nonsense. But here you're going on this. Well, perhaps you've been hearing again for years. Oh, my friend, I long that you believe for yourself and that you come and trust in Christ with all your heart and be able to give the kind of testimonies that you heard last Thursday and be able to say, I once was blind, but now I see. Oh, that none here will be lost. That none connected with Belvedere Chapel will be lost. All will have come to repentance. God loves sinners. That's why he has commanded them to repent. Come to him this morning. Come to him while there is breath in your body. Come to him now. You see, the thing about the early church was this, that in their preaching they called upon people to repent and to trust in Christ. And part of the great commission was this, that repentance and remission of sins shall be preached to all nations. I pray that you will come. This morning, now, at this very moment, and repent. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Your soul's destiny is at stake. Let us pray. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Saviour. O Lord, we thank you for our beloved Saviour this morning. (coughs) He says, come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden. Come to him. Oh, that there might be those here this morning who will come who've never come before and say, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in Thee I find. Lord, we thank You for what You've done in the lives of the young people connected with this fellowship in the past few weeks. Please, Lord, do it again. And get all the glory.